Hello and welcome. The name of this podcast series is Taboo Truths and Tales. So why these particular T words are all in the title, you may may want to know. Fair question. It's because this podcast deals with subject matter considered to be taboo. This podcast deals with a person's perception of truths. And this podcast deals with storytelling tales of fiction told by an individual. You need to choose for yourself what you perceive as truths versus tales because very often in real life that distinction is not crystal clear. This podcast is marked explicit. What that means, you should not listen to this podcast if you happen to be under the age of 18 or if someone under age 18 is listening there with you. Explicit means nobody under age 18 should be listening to this podcast series. So here we go. Taboo Truths and Tales is hosted by Madeira D'Souza. That's me. Some of you may know me by my nickname as Woody. Whatever you want to call me, I welcome you here to this podcast, which is definitely intended for people who are 18 or older. Thank you. Now let's get started. My guest today is Renee Shire. She is from Los Angeles. She lives in Los Angeles today. She attended college-level courses, Santa Monica and Cal State LA. She is married to Freddie Moore. He is a musician of some repute. You may have heard of him. He has written a book, It's Not a Rumor, A Rock and Roll Journey Through Life and Alzheimer's. And with that introduction, Renee, welcome. How are you Thank doing? You. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, it's great. It's great to talk about Freddie and, and the book, and it's preserving his legacy. So that's my, my whole goal, and to educate people about Alzheimer's and talk about him and his life, you know? Yes. Well, and I, when I first, we have never met before. Um, I, when I first heard of you, I was impressed with you and the story and the efforts that you're taking with Freddie and with the fact that he has Alzheimer's because I am connected in a similar way emotionally to that disease. My father, died uh in um 2011 um uh, he was he lived 83 years so that's you know it's a very important thing to say he lived 83 uh-huh. years but he did have alzheimer's he also had valley fever which uh-huh. is a southwest thing it's a fungus that lives in the soil and it can affect uh, lungs and breathing and that's eventually what uh, is the cause of death for him uh, was valley fever but so I am connected to in in a very direct way emotionally to Alzheimer's disease through a loved one my own father and that's 
primarily why I wanted to talk to you because you are connected now. The other thing is you're in Los Angeles, which is one of my favorite places. I lived there and worked in Los Angeles radio. So Alzheimer's, let's start with that. Um, in your book, you give a description of when the diagnosis was given to you. Can you kind of talk about that as a way of starting us off here today? Sure, sure. And I'm really sorry about your father. Um, to me, this is a horrible disease because it really robs the person of their humanity in so many ways. And especially for Freddie, he loved his brain. He loved his brain so much. And he really loved to learn and fill it up with tons of new material. Um, and it's just, it's so sad that he has lost that. And so I started noticing, see, he was, he was such a genius in so many ways. Not only was he just an amazing songwriter, lyricist, and musician, and just person, overall person, he... He used to he used to be like Google Maps before there was Google Maps. He loved maps. He loved to study geography and everything like that. He studied everything, but he would know everything where it was in L.A. He knew every spot, every back road, everything. He didn't need, you know, a, a map. He kind of felt like he used to tell me he could visualize it from up above in a way, and he could see it in his mind. Yeah. And so when he first started getting... A memory loss, I would notice he would get lost. And that was so odd for him because for 30 years, he was super, you know, great at it, you know, and it just like, he knew everything. And so for him to lose his car or forget where he parked or forget where he was go, you know, where the Home Depot was or something was really odd for me. And I was, I was kind of like disconcerting because I was like, what is going on with you? You you know, you always know everything. So um, that's when I first started noticing small little things. And then later he started locking, like he would leave the keys in the door and then say, I'm locked out. I, I don't know where the keys are. You know, like he would leave the apartment and then go out the front door and then go, I don't know how to get back in because I don't know where my keys are. But he had left them in the door, you know, or he would leave, the, you know, things on the stove or whatever. And, and so things like that started happening. And I made him go get an MRI. He, he was like really claustrophobic, so he didn't want to. But I made him go get an MRI because I said, something's wrong. It's There doesn't seem to be anything right. And, you know, like something is wrong. And so... Um, I made him go get an MRI back in 2010, and on that MRI, they didn't see anything. They didn't see any problem in his brain, um, So, because the technology wasn't there yet. But as things went on, things started progressing, you know, and he started getting uh, worse and worse in the memory and, and forgetting things and stuff like that. And so in 2014, I finally convinced him to go to a neurologist. And I said, you have to go to a neurologist. We have to figure out what's going on. And then we got the diagnosis for real. And they gave him the test, you know, where they ask you to remember the three words and um, draw a clock and, and write where, you know, draw the arms where they, you know, go. And um, he and he, they asked, you know, where where are we in the city of, you know, what city are we in? What floor is this doctor's office on? And he, he didn't know. He couldn't answer a lot of those things. He kept looking at me like cheat, you know, help me cheat. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I can't. Um, and so we did get that definitive 
uh, answer. And then we went for an amyloid PET scan, which actually shows you that there's plaque on the brain. And from then on, it was like, okay, we got to fight this. I'm going to fix him. I'm going to fix him. And that was my, my plan. And I was, I guess I was in denial for a long time because I tried absolutely everything. And I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but Alzheimer's is like the Borg. Resistance is futile. Yes. Oh, wow. That is a, <laughs> that is great. Wow. <laughs> well, and, and the denial part that you mentioned. I understand completely. It's a thing that uh, uh, we pr- we want to protect ourselves from suffering, and we want also to protect our loved ones from suffering. And then comes a day, maybe, not everyone, but in your case and in mine, there was nothing else that I could do for my dad. And at some point you came to a similar realization about your husband, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, you know, in the beginning, I was trying everything. I really subjected him to a lot of horrible things. I mean, I, I made him go for a hyperbaric chamber. I made him do oxygen therapy. He was taking 22 supplements a day, which were like curcumin, meaning turmeric and ashwagandha and a ton of fish oil and olive oil and coconut oil. I mean, I was just filling him with all of the, we were trying to get his own immune system to fight whatever was happening, but it was, you know, we tried, we tried and tried, but it just, uh, it didn't, it didn't work. I mean, for a little bit, he was, he was better. He would have good days and bad. And I had him exercising. I reversed his type two diabetes. I had him working out with a trainer. We were eating only organic uh, foods and everything. But, and we, we even were following this healthy cookbook for the mind, you know, and um, everything I did, it just, it just kept getting worse. And no matter what, you know, I, I kind of lost the battle. So um, I did have him genetically tested. We tested him for heavy metals and, you know, like all that stuff. Like if he had mercury in his system or if he had, if he was exposed to something, you know, like you were saying, you know, be something like valley fever or something, you know. But um, we had him tested, and what happened when we had him tested with the genetic testing, it turns out he had two copies of the Alzheimer's gene, one from his mom and one from his dad. Oh, my. So there was no getting around it. Yeah. And um, he does have it. It's prevalent in his family. His older brother has Alzheimer's. His mother passed from Alzheimer's. His grandmother passed from Alzheimer's. We don't know about his father because his father died of a heart attack at 60-something, you know, like 62. So we don't know if he would have developed it because, you know, he had heart problems. Yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of his relatives have uh, Alzheimer's. So it's just very prominent in his family. And I just tried to get as educated as possible and, took care of him as best as I could, and we cried a lot together. You know, we just sat on the couch in our apartment and just cried a lot because we knew what was coming, and it was just sad, you know? Well, I believe from my my knowledge of the disease and the progression is that there is no, well, first of all, there is no cure. Um, You can't be given a medication 
to reverse anything. And then all all the stuff that you mentioned, the dietary and so forth, nothing can change once the brain, it's a physical and biochemical thing, my understanding. Yeah, you're right. And once it's like a freeway, once the freeway is there, if you want to go a different way, you got to build a new freeway or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, I've lost the metaphor here. (laughs) No, that's a good analogy, actually. Well, it's with, with my dad, it was very clear that nothing could be done. And then he happened to be just very stubborn. And, and he he was married to my stepmother. And it was, uh, they chose to live out in the sticks, quote-unquote, is what I used to refer to it. <laughs> Actually, it's in Paso Robles, California, which is um, not exactly nowhere. You know, there's a lot of wineries there and so forth. But they separated from family and friends um, because of it was a divorce. He divorced my mother and then married my stepmother. So they felt they needed to go live somewhere else, and that's how they ended up in the sticks, quote-unquote. But because of living there, they allowed themselves to be insulated, and there wasn't a nice hospital nearby. Um, You know, and the medical care that he received from doctors to, you know, the support staff, I think was extremely limited because they lived in Paso Robles. Uh, The nearest hospital of any repute is Santa Barbara, which is over 130 miles one way. Right. And then Fresno, the other direction, I don't know how far. I know it's a four-hour drive, but... um, So in your case, it seems like it was very, very different in that you're in Los Angeles and the and the care that is available there certainly must be just you know it's plentiful. I would guess it was. It was. And our neurologist, he was in Santa Monica, but he was consulting with um, lots of doctors from UCLA. And you know, there were times where I felt like he was getting a little bit better, but it was it was temporary. But you know, there were good days and bad days. But one of the things, you know, we learned about is with Alzheimer's, sociability, being social is helpful. You know, having social interaction is really good for you. Well, the weird thing is, is Freddie hated to be around people. He was a total introvert, except for when he was on stage. So I used to have, I used to talk about him like he was Clark Kent in real life and then Superman on stage because he would jump off the PA systems into the crowd and be like this wild man when he was Freddie Moore. But when he was just at home, he would rather just be reading or just be with me and be very, you know, solitary. And he didn't like that social interaction. So part of the, part of the thing that we did was our doctor said, um, our neurologist, you know, you need to get out and do stuff. You need to be around people, and it's good for you to have social interaction and stuff. And so one of the things he did, which he would, he didn't really want to be with people that much, just me. Um, he's a Minnesotan, you know. Um, <laughs> so he would go on Facebook, and he would write his stories on, on Facebook and, like, tell a story. And then a bunch of his friends and fans and stuff from the old days were like, gosh, you know, you should write a book because – you got so many good stories, you know, you got all these great stories from the old days and from all this stuff. And, and so I got it in my head, we've got to write his story because 
that's going to really be great. We got to preserve this, this story that, you know, that he has. And so he, we started looking for co-writers. So I wanted to get someone to help him write the book because it's impossible to just sit and write a book by yourself. I bought a book on how to write a memoir, but that didn't help. So I contacted the LA writers group and I found, we interviewed a bunch of co-writers and he found one, Shannon Guyton, who co-wrote the book. Um, and they just clicked. And so she would come over and just interview him. And through those stories, I feel like his memory was getting a little bit better. Like some days he would be great and other days not so much. But writing the stories, it was helping him to remember all of this stuff that he would eventually forget. Yes. So the book actually helped with this process, which is crazy to think about, but it is. I mean, it was great. It was years that he worked on this with her. And then, you know, after 2016, he couldn't anymore. It was like she had to finish it on her own. But she had gone through so much. And by the way, he's a collector. So he had every every program that he ever did. You know, he used to create the programs for the set list and for the, he would send out fan letters to the, fan, you know, all these fans, the thousands of fans he had. And so he saved all of this stuff. So we had tons of information that we could fill in, we could use to fill in, to fill in the book. Yeah. And one of the things that I was thinking too, when we were talking about writing the book is he's written, I don't know, over 500 songs or more. And the lyrics are really uh, meaningful and, and prolific. And he would write them when he was feeling something or when he was going through something. So they all told part of the story too, the lyrics of these songs. So I decided each chapter of the book would be the name of one of his songs. And then at the end of each chapter, we would write the lyrics and we just thought that would be a cool idea. And, um, he read a lot of music biographies. He read a lot and he loved music biographies and since he felt a real kinship with other musicians and songwriters. So he wanted his book to be more like jump around in time, not I was born, I lived, and then this happened to me. Yeah. But, you know, um, he wanted it to jump around in time. And it started off with talking about Madame Wong's and all the clubs he used to play that he was like, headlining with the police and with the motels and with Oingo Boingo. And it just was so much fun to talk about. And we all have that nostalgia thing. I mean, we love it. And it, to, to us, it was the best time of our lives, you know? Yeah. So we just, we just got all of this information, and that's how the book came to be. Well, and I want to applaud the decision to do that, as you calling it, called it, jumping around, not doing it chronological. I think that that's more like real life. That's how we look back on things and remember things and so yeah he wanted it to be like a conversation like we were just sitting and having a conversation and then we're talking about stuff you know like yeah. the old days and whatever hey what did um if i don't know if this happened so i'll just ask when he saw in text form you know the words that were his and he knew that shannon had been his co-author what did he say when he saw, or if anything, what did he say about seeing his own memories in text form? 
we would cry. He would cry every time I would read. We would get the chapter finished. He would edit it, and then we would get the chapter, and then we I would read it to him, and he would just sit there and cry because it wasn't just sad crying. It was like from happiness that this is being preserved. Yeah. This story is being preserved. So he was he was really moved by the whole process. I mean, we would both, he would cry every time I would read a chapter and, and we would laugh too, because there's tons of funny stories too, you know? So yeah. it was just, he loved it. And I think he would be really proud of the way it turned out. Well, I asked that because my dad was not aware at any point. Um, I think he had 10 years of, the disease before he passed away, but he was never self-aware of the memory loss. He was, he was just, it was astonishing. Uh, he would, um, for instance, he would ask a question about someone that he and I both knew. Uh, how is Sam doing? He would ask. And then two minutes later, by the way, how is Sam doing? And I had a conversation with him one time I was in Paso Robles visiting because I didn't live any longer in California. So for me, it was, you know, now I'm in Vegas, but I lived back east, so to speak, in Washington, D.C. area. So I'm there at his ranch, and how is Sam? How is Sam? How is Sam? How is Sam? Repeatedly, I swear to you, Renee, ten, mm -hmm. ten times in a yeah. very short... And so he was unaware of what he was doing. He was unaware of what he had lost. And that just, just, I could not handle that. It's hard for me to talk about it now. And you know exactly, <laughs> I'm sure you know exactly what I'm saying. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So what about uh, Rick, uh, Freddie Moore? What was he, is he, has he ever been aware of what is lost or is it all just? No. Know? Okay. Now he's, he's completely gone. He, um. He barely recognizes me and at this time, and he's very confused. And um, it's, it's almost like the, the walking dead at the, the memory care facility that he's in. I mean, it's, it's really hard to watch. And for those of, you know, those of us who know him and knew what a great mind he had and to see what he is now it's just devastating i mean it, it's completely devastating and people always say you know he's just not that you know it's not him anymore it's not him anymore yeah. you know he's yeah. he's not he's alzheimer's rick or alzheimer's freddie now yeah. you know but well the, um, the thing that people don't who, who are who are not aware of alzheimer's and have no knowledge of what it is and what it does they have no concept to compare it to, and it's a simple thing. I can say the words. If you lose your memory, you lose your identity. Mm -hmm. It's just that yes. simple. And, uh, you know, you use the, <laughs> made me chuckle, but I apologize. You said the walking dead at the memory care facility. What, what goes on? I have, my, my dad did not go to that kind of treatment. It was, you know, small town out in the sticks. Uh, when he did finally go in for full-time medical attention, it was uh, like a, a clinic in a smaller town in Templeton, California, which is smaller than Paso Robles, you know, and it's like, come on. So I was always angry that 
my stepmother didn't take him to Santa Barbara and have him stay in Santa Barbara at Cottage Hospital or in Fresno, whatever hospital. But in your case, and Freddie and Rick, the memory care facility, what goes on? Can you, can you, cause I don't know, and I'm sure the listeners would probably be interested in, in learning what goes on in those facilities. Well, the reason why I chose this memory care facility for him was because they played a lot of music and they had a lot of activities. So what I used to do before I moved him in there, I, I really didn't, I kept him out of there as long as I could. I did it myself and then I had to work though because to support us. And so I had a caregiver during the day and then I would take over at night and he would wander and I would, I'd have to sleep with one eye open, you know, cause they wander sometimes they get sundowners, which is, they don't know the difference between day and night. And so they would just, sometimes he would just walk out the front door and it would be two o'clock in the morning and I would have to run out and chase him, you know, and sometimes he just wouldn't calm down. So I would go out for a drive and we would just go out for a drive at that middle of the night, you know, just because he needed to get out or whatever it was. So it's kind of, I was really absent at my job and, you know, losing, you know, my mind a little bit, but I used to take him to this place for daycare almost just on like one day a week. It started out on Thursdays because that's when they had drum circle. And he did great at drum circle. He liked playing drums. He liked hitting those bongos or those big drums, conga drums or whatever they were. And, you know, they would go around and, and then they would all play, you know, and I want, I would let him bring his guitar and once in a while he would play. And, you know, we played there a couple of times, him and I, you know, like I just learned all his songs. He taught me how to play guitar a long time ago. So, um, and then I started taking him after I got a caregiver and then when she was having trouble um, taking care of him because he was getting a little too um, difficult to deal with, he would get angry and stuff. I would take him there for daycare. And so he got used to it. And the reason why I liked it is because they had all the music and they had activities and they had, you know, things to do, you know, um, but right, so what they do there is they have the third floor, which is like the loft, which is like all the hip kids, you know, older people. But, you know, they can dress themselves, they can talk, and, you know, it's it, they watch movies and stuff like that. And then the first floor is when they get a little worse. And, um, and he was on the first floor for some time. And now, and the first floor was kind of cool because the people aren't so bad that they don't, you know, they repeat themselves just like your dad. You know, I, there's there's people that come over and talk to you. I know everybody there, you know, the residents, I mean. And they would come over and talk to you. And, you know, it's like a big living room. And the funniest thing is they say funny things, you know, like this memory care facility. Every one of them says, this is the worst hotel I've ever been at. <laughs> <laughs> because, it's you know, they all have that same furniture, the same you know, yeah. <laughs> polyester and the carpet, you know. And then, um, or they'll say, like, this airport lounge is really bad. This plane is never getting here, you know, or something like that. So I would go all the time when he was on the first floor, and I would play guitar. I would play his songs when he couldn't play guitar anymore. And we would just hang out, and I would hang out there as much as I could. But then when he got moved to the second floor, which is the worst, this is the worst cases of everybody, it's really hard to go visit on the second floor because you feel like you're going to cuckoo's nest wow there's people screaming there's people 
fighting. They're like two-year-olds. They're almost like toddlers. They re- It's like they revert back. Yes. And they fight. You know, Freddie steals people's orange juice and drinks it, and then they get mad. Or he'll walk over and steal their food. Or he'll go and pat them on the head or whatever. And, you know, they, don't, they all don't know what is going on. But it's just... Um, it's very hard to watch, you know, and it's just so watching somebody disintegrate yes. very slowly. Yes. Well, and, so, the, and the toll, you, you kind of alluded to this, the toll on the person giving the care. I don't mean at the uh, facility, but I mean you, when you were uh-huh. doing this on your own. It's just impossible for anyone to understand what a caregiver goes through Um in dealing with an Alzheimer's patient. Um, yeah, I mean, he would get mad after... So I used to take care of him. He forgot how to wipe when you'd go to the bathroom. And so I would sit on the bathtub. I would sit on the edge of the bathtub and I would hand him the toilet paper. And then it, he would say, what do you want... You know, like, look at me. Like, what do you want me to do with this? And then I would help him out. And then he would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, well, we have to do this, you know. And then when he would, when we, I would give him a shower, a lot of times I would take a shower with him so I could help, you know, like we would both be in the shower, so it's kind of easier. But he felt like the water was hurting him. I think with Alzheimer's, it's like your brain doesn't know what sensations are painful or what aren't. They don't know what pain is anymore. Those receptors are like deadened or something and he thought the water was painful when he would you know take a shower so I started giving him baths and he would fight me every time like what are you doing you know like what are you doing like this crazy you're an idiot he would say or whatever but it wasn't him it was the disease so when it got to the point where he became incontinent I couldn't do it anymore (laughs) I just I just couldn't I couldn't clean the house and him fast enough like I didn't know what to clean first you know and um so that's when I had to move him into the facility that was at the end of 2019 so um and then now he doesn't know how to use utensils anymore so he eats with his hands um, no matter what it is, even if it's rice, and he um, he'll steal other people's food, even though he has his own plate. Because he, for some reason, he has to get up and walk around. I don't know what that is, hmm. but um, he just has to walk around. Yeah, and um, and then he's very confused. He doesn't make sense with anything he says anymore. It's just gibberish. And when I try to t- say something to him. Like, he used to say, I love you. You know, he always used to say, no matter what, you know, I would go and visit, and I would say, I love you. And he would say, I love you, or something like that. You know, like, he would copy what I was saying. Now he just looks at me, like, with his grimace or, like, a puzzled face, like something's wrong. And I'll say, everything's okay. And then he'll say, okay. And then we just walk. Wow. So, it's very much, um, he's very much declined now. Yeah, well, you had used... um I listened to an interview you gave um, on another podcast, and you used the phrase "reverted back to being a kid," um, mm-hmm. and I think that's uh, that seems to be very accurate. That's what I thought of in my my dad's case. Um, mm-hmm. So through all of this, 
<laughs> what do you say to people? You know, what is uh, in the uh, in the promo on Amazon for the book? And I will give the title and everything again. Um, in the promo, it talks about you have a message, uh, or the book is a message of I don't know if it says hope. But it's a positive thing. It's not, oh, this is sad, it's sad, and by the way, this is sad. It, it is not. That's not what the promo says. So when I ask you, what would you say? What is, what is it that you would like people to take away from all this? I just want, I want to preserve his, his legacy and his, he was an incredible person. And I just want, I want his story told and I want people to, if they want to read it, but I just think it's, it's a beautiful story. There's so many aspects to our lives together. His great music career, his amazing songwriting, our love story. He was married to Demi Moore, blah, blah. And, um, and then, you know, there was just so many cool things that he did in his life. And I mean, the hope that I have is at least we got those 30 years you know we we got we got to spend a ton of time together and he was my true true soulmate i mean seriously my my soulmate and we got we had so much fun and so much happy times that to read the book i think people will laugh and maybe cry but it's a really beautiful story and it's just it's like he's still here with us if we remember all of his stuff, you know, he's, he's, his memory is in this book. Yes. Well, and that is, that is a wonderful thing, Renee, for you to explain it like that. Um, I think the message, if I can echo it back to you, it's that people who are dealing with a loved one who has Alzheimer's, it's crucial to remember their life as Mm -hmm. they lived it and not Mm -hmm. focus on the decline and right. you know, on the end of life, it's not about the end of life. It's not about the decline of life. It's about the life that they lived. And and not everyone's going to write a book, but you guys did. And uh, you know, it's a wonderful way to preserve. It, it lives forever in somebody's exactly. Yeah. And and I mean, I I wish people would I mean would listen to the music too because I really and I'm not just saying this because I'm biased, but I really think. He was an incredible songwriter and and lyricist and musician. I mean, I, these songs are so good. They still are lasting, to, for me anyway, to this day. I still listen to his music, and I, I love it. I just wish it would get out there. You know, it's just hard because we don't... We, he never got that record deal because <laughs> he wouldn't give up the rights to his babies which are his songs and he just you know he, they wanted him to sign over like 90 percent of everything publishing royalties writers royalties everything and he wouldn't do it he just wouldn't do it so um you know one of the things we say in the book is you know he he had a lot of, he had a lot of success and never made it <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. Yeah. it's like he just it's he's almost like Forrest Gump he he went through a lot of stuff he got to meet a lot of really cool people and do a lot of really cool things but he just missed out you know it's like just missed it by that much but um it's okay because he was really happy and we were really happy and so that's that's the the part of it that I think is cool you know and and the book I think it's a cool story. It's it's got so many different aspects to it. It's not just. I feel like L.A. 
character in the book too, because we're talking about all these cool places that the whiskey, the troubadour, you know, in those days it was fun to go out and, and, and listen to that music and dance and just, we, we loved it. We could go to Cantor's at two o'clock in the morning and, and have, you know, pancakes, <laughs> you know, it just, it was good stuff. Well, and, and not everyone, <laughs> not only can not everyone write a book, but not everyone has the experience of working in the entertainment industry, like, you know, and, and those legendary venues, the whiskey and so forth, uh, mm-hmm. whiskey a go-go and so forth. I did want to mention for the listeners, you said music, and obviously when you get a book, a person gets a book, it's text, right? And even if it's uh, electronic, it's still text. But you do have very good foresight, and you put together a website, um, and I'm going to give the uh, name because somebody spelled rumor the British way. Exactly, oh, no. that's ready for you. Have a cup of tea, <laughs> will ya? Um, so it's rumor, R-U-M-O-U-R. Rumor is spelled the British way. So the website is, it's not a rumor. <laughs> that's I-T-S-N-O-T-A. And then rumor, R-U-M-O-U-R, uh-huh. is, uh, and then there's a bunch of extensions, dot wordpress.com. But the important thing is with a website, as you have, they can hear Freddie's songs yes. on the website. And you don't need, you know, the book is something that you have to read. And this is a blog and you have to read it, but it has audio and it's a very cool thing. I would encourage people to go um, and visit. Um, the name of the book is It's Not a Rumor, R-U-M-O-U-R, A Rock and Roll Journey Through Life and Alzheimer's. And it's available on Amazon, which is probably the easiest way anyone can find it. Although... I caution everyone. I looked it up, spelling rumor the American way, and I didn't get anywhere. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to do the British spelling. And if I say it again, people will think, why are you saying it again? But it is, <laughs> it is, it's an important spelling distinction. Yes. Uh, so, and he it, also has a music publishing website. Yes, yes. I looked at Demo- that. Demophonic.com. Well, that one's and, a little uh, harder because when you, you have to spell it almost. Because I, okay. I mean, <laughs> I didn't mean, hey, Renee, spell it, will you? Uh, but it's D E M O and then P H O N. What? What's the rest? Uh, I C I C dot com. Okay. And then um, there's all the songs listed there in chronological order. If you actually, you can not chronological. You can click. There's an uh, there's a place to click alphabetical order, and you can find the song. It's not a rumor. Um, there's video of It's Not a Rumor, and like on YouTube and stuff. And um, there's lots of, yeah, there's a, lots of things you can find, you know, on the website on It's Not a Rumor and, and on Instagram and Facebook. And we're putting out all kinds of uh, releases all the time on our Facebook page and on Instagram. We put out lots of excerpts from the book and pictures and all yeah. kinds of stuff. I think you're doing a great job with all that. I, I have to commend you on that. I do have, Thank a, you. I guess, a rude question. It's not a rumor, the song, uh, 1979 or 1980, and Demi Moore appears in 
the video on YouTube, and what is the story with that? Yes, she was married to him for a while, but um, if you know when you decide to name what's going to be the title of your book, how is it that title? It's not a rumor got selected because for a long time I didn't tell anybody that he was sick, and um, he was playing. He was playing little acoustic duet gigs with his bandmate, Dennis Peterson, um, that, you know, at a couple of clubs. And if people, you know, I would be, we would have to write the lyrics out on these giant charts for him. In, and he would have a music stand in front of him. And nobody knew what was going on. And then when we started writing the book, we started trying to figure out what should we name the book. And I said, maybe we just name it. It's not a rumor because it's not, you know, people wouldn't notice that he would forget the lyrics when they would come to the show a little bit. And so we kind of used it as it's not a rumor that he has Alzheimer's. And then it's also the name of this song, which is a really cool song. And, and it was a very popular song for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that's why we decided on it's not a rumor. That's a good answer. And I now understand um I take it that the ex-wife is no longer in the picture in the in the sense of his life today. No, because uh, Demi is uh, famous or ish, and so um, <laughs> when she became famous, she she became Demi Moore. You know, with, with his last name Moore, um, she just when he didn't make it, she just dropped him like a hot potato. So. Um, and thank God she did, because then I could be in the picture. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> and nobody would have taken care of, as good care of him as me. <laughs> That's right. So, Well, this has been a very, well, I, I shouldn't say it's enjoyable. It, it is, because you are an enjoyable person to interact with. The subject matter, I want to see hope. I mean, I want to see um, people enjoy the music of Freddie Moore and to enjoy the excellent stories in the book. And, you know, but also to be aware that Alzheimer's is for real and it is incurable and it is a one-way ticket and there's no coming back. Um, Do you think that if famous people will talk openly about Alzheimer's, that things will be better overall? Yes, because there's a lot of, I know this sounds horrible to say, but there's a lot of people pushing cure-type things that don't, they won't mean anything. I mean, it's 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 a racket, and people take advantage of other people. Of, of people in a vulnerable position and that's not right yeah. and we need to get more education out there and I mean people you know people wanted me to take him down to Mexico and do a uh, stem cell uh, thing for him in his brain well I researched it thoroughly and discussed it with the neurologist and everything and he said there's no way because Nothing can pass through the blood-brain barrier. You know, it just won't go through. So that is a whole, that's that's a fallacy to think that stem cells are going to work. You know, in this, in that, in Alzheimer's, okay? Right. It may work for, for sickle cell, but it, it's definitely not going to work for Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of people pushing a lot of stuff 
that's not true. And it's not, you know, and, it, and, and there's so many things you have to learn when you, when you're going through this, when you, you know, you don't ask questions of people with Alzheimer's because they get confused and they don't know. And then they get upset because they can't answer, yes. you know, yeah. and you just agree. You basically just agree. So you have to learn that as you, you know, when you're going through that with somebody, but there's just a lot of things, a lot of things people could know more about it. I mean, that people ask me all the time, has you read the book? Uh, no, he hasn't read in six years. Um, they ask you, know, you. They ask you is that. Is he happy to see the book? You know, does he? Does he? You know, I don't know. <laughs> that, seems, <laughs> you know? that seems to me. I hate to say, but I will say. It seems like a really insensitive question to ask you. Uh, has he read the book? I mean, come on, come yeah. on. Well, I'm angry yeah. now. So now I. They ask me all the time if he knows my name. He hasn't known my name for a very long time. And why? There and is. Why would an anyone ask you that? Memory, what? What? You know. What does that gain for anyone to ask you? Renee, you I don't know, know. it makes no sense to me. It I, I think, you know, the important, if you want to pick famous people, certainly there are um, entertainment industry people. Glenn Campbell comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Tony that, Bennett. Tony Bennett. One of the most famous um, examples, and well, I guess he was in entertainment as well, Ronald Reagan. He was uh, Ronald Reagan, go- yes. governor of California. Before that, he was an actor in Hollywood. Right. And then he became president. And right. he, his uh, wife, she is no longer living, but his wife was very open about the, like you're mm-hmm. doing, about, you know, it's not make believe. It really happened. This is what happened to this person whom mm-hmm. I loved. You know, so that kind of thing. I think as the years go by, the more people who have famous connections or whatever, however you want to say it, if they start talking more openly, it'll be a better place. That's my opinion. I hope that that day comes soon. I hope so too, and I like I like that. I mean that that would make me happy. I mean, even talking about the book makes me happy because it's remembering all the good stuff. Yeah, well, and I think people, whether they care about Hollywood or not, or whether they care about um, rock and roll or not, I think they will enjoy this book. Once more, the title, It's Not a Rumor, R-U-M-O-U-R, A Rock and Roll Journey Through Life and Alzheimer's, um, available on Amazon. Uh, Renee Shire, what a joy it is. <laughs> to have met it was you. such a joy to talk to you. Too. I know. I mean, I hey, like we're, we've known each other. Forever. I know. It seems that way. Well, let's hang out. Uh, no, I'm I'm in Las Vegas and you're in L.A. Um, but at some point, I would love to meet you face to face. Love it. And um, uh, I again thank you so much for sharing some very personal and, in most cases, very emotional details about your life. And again, thank, thank you for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. And everything you said was so poignant and meaningful. So I really appreciate you. <laughs> You're going to make me cry now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Renee, very much. I'll stop recording before I start crying. Um, this is this is a tough subject for me, Alzheimer's, because I'm not uh, objective. My father is you know i mean he was 83 so he lived a very full life but um he's no longer with us so it's sad when i think back on all the you know his communication skills changed dropped it was it was pretty sad so uh mm-hmm. 
and and that is why, in large part, I wanted to do this because I felt I needed to do this. I have a way, I have a platform, a way of getting more information out. And, you know, you and I had never met, but I felt like you would know what to say, and you did. You really did. Find out more about this topic. Go online to the website, Taboo Truths and tales.com that's taboo truths and tales.com taboo truths and tales is hosted by madera de souza that's me thank you 